It is good to be with you, to be able to gather around God's word. Um, Before we jump into Romans and our last sermon on Romans, I do want to kind of give you an update for where we're heading for the rest of the year as praxis. Uh, We will be concluding our study of the book of Romans tonight, and then we'll have approximately three normal teaching Thursdays before winter break. And so I know it's hard to imagine, kind of wild how quickly this small group season goes by. Uh, But instead of diving directly into our next study, we're going to do a mini series on the attributes of God from the Old Testament. So just three messages, uh, focusing our uh, view upon the Lord. And the reason for this is twofold. First, it allows us to see that the God of the Old Testament is the same loving, faithful, holy God that we hear about, we're more familiar with, shining forth in the person of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And overall, I think just um, the spiritual climate of the church today across the nation, across the world, we just need a better grasp of the Old Testament. You know, Uh, it's not archaic, it's not spooky like many think, but it's actually profitable for our faith, for our understanding of God and the gospel. Second, uh, studying the God of the Old Testament will provide somewhat of a smoother transition into our next next book we're going to study, which is the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, if you don't not familiar with that book. It's a great book. It's one of my favorite books of the Bible with timeless lessons and truths that I think are particularly pertinent with this demographic and this stage of life. And having a proper view of the God of the Old Testament will be beneficial for us to rightly embracing the wisdom that's uncovered in the book of Ecclesiastes, a book of the Old Testament. So that's kind of the tentative plan for November and December, as well as the beginning of 2024. But before we get too ahead of ourselves, we do have to finish up Romans tonight. And if you were with us two weeks ago, Christian tackled the first half of chapter 16. The first half where the apostle Paul sends greeting. He's saying hello to all these people in the church at Rome. And Christian had mentioned even in his introduction how he was assigned this text, right? He didn't choose it out of a deep passion and conviction uh, to preach it because let's be real, right? It's not the most riveting, inspiring passage in the Bible. In fact, I think he called preaching on it a test, a pastoral hazing of sort. And I am happy to report he passed with flying colors. Um, But jokes aside, for full disclosure, it wasn't like um, I was intentionally trying to jack Christian by assigning him that passage. I just had thought, because he was transitioning into the ministry here at Praxis, it would be good for him, as well as for our group, to hear him teach at least one time from the book of Romans. But providentially, as you can tell, there weren't many options. It was either the first half of Romans or uh, tonight's passage. And I felt like it would be more appropriate if I wrapped up and concluded our series. So that's why he got kind of stuck with the first half of Romans 16. All this to say, Christian did a great job. You know, it also helps that um, he's the smartest one out of him myself and Alessandro. And so I can't even pronounce most of those tricky names in Romans 16 verses one to 16. I mean, I was glancing at it 
you know, Aristobulus, it just sounds like a Pokemon to me, right? <laughs> English is hard. I mean, I'm Asian, I'm Chinese. And Alessandro, I mean, he's even more of a mess. He's half this, half that. So uh, we were really fortunate to have Christian preach on that passage. Uh, he has that brilliant seminary mind as well, and I trust his sermon was a blessing to you. Now, uh, I guess that's by way of introduction. We're finally reaching our last passage in Romans tonight. And um, just by way of review, I was looking back on when we actually first embarked on studying this grand epistle. And it was when the church was reopening after COVID back on February 11th, 2021. So my guess is, Many, if not most of you, were not here back then. How many of you were here still? Okay, I see like 10 people, the godliest Christians right there. Um, just messing. But props to you who were there, you know, enduring, toughing it out for so long, so faithful, especially me, with me as the main preacher. Um, but since then and after tonight, we will have a total of 48 messages on the book of Romans. And it's been quite a journey, right? I hope a rewarding one, because in this letter, the Apostle Paul has really slowed down, camped out on what is of utmost importance, what is greatest significance in unfolding the gospel of God and how the righteous shall live by faith. And he has labored for 16 chapters to hold up this gemstone, God's glorious salvation, so that we might be mesmerized by its dazzling truth and be forever changed. And as he finishes this literary masterpiece, Paul is still enamored with the good news of Jesus Christ. He's a one-trick pony. He can't get over this soapbox, this person of our Lord and Savior. So much so that it permeates everything about him, including how he sends greetings to the Romans, how he relates with people, and the last words he wants to impart and bless this church with. And I think that really reveals something. It models to us what a life consumed by the gospel looks like. When living by faith gets into the very nitty gritties, into the cracks of life, even down to final instructions how you say goodbye, your farewells to the people you love. And there's much, I think, to consider, to gain as we examine this. And so what I'm going to do is I'll read our passage, and then we'll pray for our times. So if you haven't already, you can go ahead and turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 16. We'll be looking at verses 17 all the way to the end of this book, verse 27. So follow along as I read our text. This is God's word. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 
verse 21. Timothy, my fellow worker, for dramatic effect, verse 21, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So does Lucius and Jason and Sospater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. God, as we visit this beloved book one last time as a fellowship group, I pray that our hearts would be overwhelmed at your kindness in showing us the radiance, beauty, loveliness of Jesus Christ as expressed so fully and wonderfully in the gospel. And Father, we pray that we would be like Paul, be people of the gospel, that it defines everything about us. From our great ambitions in life to the small details, what we think, the words we utter, how we relate to one another. And so Father, use this passage to shape your people, to convict and conform us into the image of your son, that we would rejoice over this good news, that we would never graduate from the gospel, but we would cherish it, holding it so close to our hearts that it transforms our lives. So use this word now. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So we wanna see how the gospel permeates everything about the apostle Paul, even in his final writings to the church at Rome. And first we'll examine this under the heading of gospel foes, gospel foes. Look again at verse 17. Paul begins by writing this, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Now, I think upon first glance, it's easy to kind of dismiss this warning as if Paul is merely going through the motions of his pastoral responsibilities, tying up any loose strings. But listen, there is an intensity, a serious tone to his words here. You know, how you talk to someone who's handling a stick of dynamite is very different than a stick of gum. One is super dangerous. There's no fooling around. The other, no big deal. Well, you can pick up on the weightiness of the circumstance, of the situation, by the way Paul speaks. He says, I appeal to you. This is language that the apostle has used before uh, to my recollection, only on one other occasion, to emphasize the gravity of the moment. Do you know where it is? It's a famous verse. Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So get that. That's the verse everyone memorizes, right? And with good reason. 
It's a major turning point in the letter when Paul pivots from gospel belief to gospel behavior. All this glorious doctrine and how it should shape and translate into transformation, a life devoted to God by presenting ourselves as if we were a burnt offering, a sacrifice pleasing to God. And then here, at the very end in Romans 16, 17, Paul is creating the same rhetorical effect, the same air, the same atmosphere. It's sobering. He is gripping us by the collar because what he is about to say is on the same level, it seems, as rendering spiritual worship to God. What is it? Paul warns, I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles. Now, these days, we can be divided by so many things, right? Our zip code, age, food preference, occupation, hobbies. But Paul's concern isn't cliques founded on popularity, social status, or common interests. He charges us to be on guard for those who promote divisive doctrines, teaching contrary to what he has laid out in the book of Romans. And this makes perfect sense. If the gospel is the linchpin for both eternal and everyday life, then anyone, anything that threatens that doctrine is no small perpetrator or silly mistake. The stakes are just too high. The consequence is too severe. In fact, Paul allows for no leeway. Just think about that. A man who is so enamored with grace, so enamored with being gracious, on this occasion, he doesn't tell us to take a moderate position or just to be careful with interacting with such individuals. No, no, no. He speaks in absolutes. No exceptions. It's a firm command. Avoid them. If you're using the NASB, that translation, it says, turn away from them, which illustrates it well. Have no dealings with such people. Now, some qualifications. This doesn't mean we don't converse with those who don't see eye to eye on, uh, or with us on every fine point of doctrine doesn't mean you don't talk to those who are unbelievers yet curious about Christian faith. We are to witness and evangelize the lost. And elsewhere, Paul commands us to gently rebuke and correct those in error. But there is a caveat. Even that type of admonishment is reserved for brothers, for those who are genuine believers, just immature, maybe ignorant in their faults. What Paul is prohibiting is associating with those who are well aware of what they're doing. Individuals with malicious, dangerous intent, wolves as Jesus calls them. Notice how Paul characterizes such opponents. He continues in verse 18 to show why he provides no space. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive. They trick the hearts 
of the naive. You know, chatting and fellowshipping with someone who's sincere, who's growing in their faith, is not the same as chopping it up with someone who is insincere, trying to kill your faith. And Paul is sounding the alarm. These gospel foes plan to deceive. They will employ sneaky tactics like smooth talk and flattery to sow division, to split the church, to separate you from God. What might this sound like? It doesn't have to be anything super flagrant or egregious. It can be subtle half-truths that will blow up in your face. It can sound like, you know, aren't we all inherently good? You're a pretty decent person. We just occasionally mess up and in our mental laps, we need a spiritual pick-me-up. You know, God's help from time to time. Or you might've come across catchy sayings like, once saved, always saved, right? So it doesn't really matter then how you live as long as at one point you believe Jesus and you're all good to go. But such teachings and statements are antithetical to the gospel, to what Paul has laid out in Romans. You see, the gospel is only good news if we first fully accept the bad news, that we don't just mess up on accident. We are sinners through and through. The gospel tells us we are justified by faith alone, but true, authentic faith never comes alone. Genuine faith will show itself in a life of obedience, which is what Paul gets at in verse 19 of our passage and later on in verse 16, that the culmination, the expression of faith is evident in obedience. Here, Paul is snapping his fingers to wake us up, to be on guard, because enemies don't just slip in from the outside, but sometimes from within. And Paul's game plan against such foes is on two fronts. He tells us to obey and to be wise. Look at what he comments about concerning these Romans in verse 19. He says, for your obedience is known to all, to kind of distinguish and separate them from the pack. People are trying to deceive, but Romans, you guys are doing well because your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good, innocent as to what is evil. Look, when you walk on the sidewalk, instead of the middle of the street, you're less likely to get run over by a car, right? You don't have to worry about that. And in the same, when we pursue obedience, it keeps us out of harm's way. We're less likely to be duped away from the gospel when we have our sights set on obedience to the gospel. And here, Paul is commending the Romans because they had done well in walking along the right path. Paul says they had a reputation of this. Do you? Now, if obedience is the fruit, wisdom is the root. To be wise, most fundamentally, is to live according to what God defines and prescribes as good, right, and true. 
And then inversely, to flee from what God defines as bad, wrong, and false. And yet, sadly, so many people today, so many of maybe even us, we have it backwards. We have immersed our minds, steeped our lives in debauchery and all sorts of wickedness while being complacent, clueless as to the things of God. And it should not be so amongst Christians. Just assess how much of your life is exposed to, shaped by worldly principles, and how much of your intake encourages you towards obedience and godliness. Perhaps some of you need to be really honest to reevaluate the entertainment, the social media you consume, perhaps the company you keep, the friends who you deem as your closest, your best. Are they all inclining you towards God or away from him? Because truth be told, gospel foes, they don't always have to be a literal person. It only might just have to affect us personally. Paul grounds us in the ultimate expression of God's wisdom in verse 20. It says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the gospel in a nutshell. And it should be our true north, our compass for how we handle everything in our lives. The end of the story has already been written. And Paul tells us the old serpent Satan will be crushed. But did you catch the shift? Certainly, it's Jesus. Jesus will deliver the death blow. But look at where Paul places the snake. He says the, the serpent is under our feet. How does this work? You see, when you stand in Jesus Christ, when he is your everything, when he is your identity, you, simu you simultaneously stand on Satan. That gospel foes, including the serpent himself, are defeated. So don't be duped by devilish doctrines for aberrant theology. Measure everything according to the scripture and keep pursuing God in obedience. You follow Paul's train of thought here? It's very basic. Since God will hold true to his word, we learn to do the same as well. Our obedience expresses our confidence that the, righteous that, that the righteous live by faith, even when opponents attempt to deceive and divide us. I know this can be scary stuff, but thankfully God hasn't designed the Christian life to be this solo adventure we are supported and surrounded by a faithful community. Here, Paul changes gears by looking at the positive side of things. Second, from gospel foes to gospel family, gospel family, beginning in verse 21. Paul writes about his posse. He says, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sospiter, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. 
Gaius, who hosts me and to the whole church greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother, Cordus, greet you. So at this point, if you were with us two weeks ago, you might think that Paul is a huge sap, right? He's just this soft, sentimental teddy bear because didn't he already say his greetings back in verses three to 16? Well, here's the difference. That section dealt more with saying hello to specific people in the church at Rome. This section, it's Paul and his associates who just want to greet everyone. Now you look at this list, you have familiar people like Timothy, one of Paul's closest friends and partners in the gospel. But then the rest of this group is rather unfamiliar, right? In fact, we don't know too much about them. The Bible doesn't really mention Lucius, Jason, Sospater, Tertius, Gaius, Erastus, or Cordus. Again, these are very difficult names. But who are these guys? Well, if you kind of read between the lines, you can deduce some information about them. So we have Lucius, Jason, and Sospater. They're described as Paul's kinsmen. So that means they're probably Jewish, sharing the same heritage and upbringing as the apostle. Tertius was Paul's uh, kind of like this personal scribe, Emmanuelinus. So if you don't know what that is, that's okay. It's just a job title. The apostle would dictate his letter and Tertius would write it down in shorthand, much like a court stenographer. And so Romans is a long book, as you can tell, 16 chapters, and Paul is a smart guy, right? He's smart like that. He doesn't want to uh, write the letter himself and strain his hands, so he gets someone else to do it for him. And it's genius. I mean, if I ever get asked to write a book, and I won't because I don't have anything intelligent to say, but hypothetically, if I ever get asked to write a book, you better believe I'm going to force either Christian or Alessandro to jot down my thoughts. It's biblical. It's right there in the text. But that's who Tertius was. Moving on, we have Gaius. He's a host. He's a host who's likely rich. I mean, it's one thing if you can bankroll Paul, but you are just loaded if you can bankroll the entire church. Erastus is the city treasurer, so he's probably wealthy as well. And he's also probably from the same upper echelons of society. He's a person of rank, status. And then Paul ends with one final person, individual, Quartus who he mentions as nothing more than, what is it? His brother. And we're kind of let down right there, right? We're not blown away or impressed. We got a famous coworker in Timothy, prize pedigree in Lucius, Jason, Sospater, someone who literally wrote down Paul's greatest letter in Tertius, Gaius who's swimming in money, and Erastus, a civic leader, and then Quartus, a brother. One is not like the others, right? But Paul's not finishing his list with a whimper, but a bang. Because at the end of the day, what do we boast in, Christian? 
What's the most remarkable, valuable thing we have in life? It's not accolades, achievements. It's not our wealth or prestige or power. There's nothing more precious and amazing than being a child of God, a brother or sister in Christ. And the gospel, the gospel does that. The gospel takes this ragtag group from different backgrounds, belonging to different parts of society, and it unites them as friends. It unites us as friends. The gospel brings us into an eternal family. Don't take that for granted. It's incredible when you allow that to sit upon your mind. These are people who for the most part have never met. At this point in the story, Paul and his crew haven't even been to Rome. Yet there's inherently an intimacy, an affection that exists between them. Think about that for today. Isn't it both bizarre and wonderful that if you go on vacation, you travel to another city, you attend a church you've never been to for the first time, you can still worship the same God of scripture with complete strangers. The paradox that those, though these people are foreign to you, they are in a deeper, greater sense, family. You see the power of the gospel. Now there are multiple applications we can make from this point, but I'll offer one. There is a ministry in names, in personal relationships, and it is available to all of us. It doesn't require any special gifting, any eloquence, any money. All it requires is a willingness. And I know how challenging this can be, especially for our group here at Praxis. As people, our brains have a limited storage capacity. Most of you young people are working with 512 gigabytes or a terabyte hard drive. My brain is more like a floppy disk, okay? I'm old and dumb. My memory sucks and our group is rather large. There's a lot of people, there's no denying that. There's a lot of turnover too. But part of being a family means you're willing to do the hard things, even the simple things. Part of being a family means you learn names. You get to know each other. Is this something you can be intentional about and growing in as a Christian? That the gospel drives you to that because you recognize these are not mere people I sit in chairs surrounded by. This is my family. That in Christ you have been adopted into God's family, that these are your sisters and brothers for this lifetime into the next. Paul knew people by name. He took an interest in their lives and he was a busy body, but he could tell you what Sospiter, Lucius, what their story was, maybe even what they did for a living. And the question for us is, can we? 
I'm not going to give you a pop quiz you know, on our Praxis roster, who lives where, what's their social security number. I'm not trying to even guilt you into memorizing names and knowing everyone on a Thursday. But do you know anyone? Do you know someone? For all of us, this is one easy, accessible way to serve, to live out our faith. And what's really cool about this type of serving is it's usually one of the quickest way or quickest ways of serving that bears fruit, right? A visitor feels welcomed and cared for, so then they come. They come again and again, and they are enfolded into the community here, into the body of Christ. Our fellowship isn't built on a shallow foundation of preference, of common interest, of shared life stage, it is founded upon the gospel and the very family of God. Paul finally returns to square one, from gospel foes, gospel family, to gospel finale in verses 25 to 27. Paul erupts, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, amen. The bookends of Romans are found in this, these closing verses, as well as the opening theme verse all the way back in Romans chapter one, verses 16 to 17. There we read Paul confessing, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so the power of God that is able to save is the same power, Paul concludes, that is at work to strengthen, to sustain, to sanctify us, to become more like Jesus Christ. You see that? The righteous shall live by faith from beginning to end. That God's power grants us life by faith and then enables us to live by faith. How is this accomplished? Is it by some secret special knowledge that's reserved for the highly intellectual, the super godly? Is it by this divine energy drink that you, you know, need whenever you need a boost? No, it is surely the meat and potatoes of the faith. Nothing surprising, but the good news and being rooted in the gospel. And Paul says the proclamation of Jesus Christ. This is less like getting better at piano and more like growing as a human being. Here's what I mean. With piano, we all start as complete novices, amateurs, right? We learn where middle C is and then where to place the rest of our fingers. We begin to build up dexterity and muscle memory to place scales, chords. We start with simple pieces until we've acquired the ability to handle more complex songs, where advanced technique 
is necessary. The only way to be able to play something like Beethoven's for release is to keep progressing in your skills, to keep building. But this is different from how we physically grow, survive, and are sustained as human beings. Sure, now, exercise may be involved. Sleeping enough is helpful. But generally, it's not like you eat food and then at a certain age, you graduate from food. You move on to eating something completely categorically new or different. Like, okay, now that I'm a teenager, I need to start digesting metal and gold in order to become a young adult. No, that's not how it works, right? You still feed on food regardless of age. You chomp down on noodles, burritos, and the bagel bites we offer during snack time. And sure, through the years, you can develop more of a refined palate, be snobby, or have a favorite cuisine. But from birth to grandma-grandpa status, we are sustained by a steady diet of what? Food. In the same, there's no magic bullet or shortcut for Christian growth. There is no advanced theology that automatically un uh, unlocks advanced spirituality. It is the steady diet of the good news, of the gospel, and the nourishment we receive on a daily basis from the preaching of Jesus Christ that enables us to grow. Now, this doesn't mean doctrine is always basic and elementary. We grow in our appetite to learn and devour rich theology, to appreciate and apply the profundity of the gospel. Let me illustrate. Take the game of soccer. It doesn't require a whole lot to play it, right? I know this because my own kids play soccer. And in the beginning, you just have to be able to move, to run, which is why Everett, even though soccer is probably his best sport out of, compared to all the rest, it's his least favorite because that fool hates running. <laughs> and I do not blame him because guess what? I do too. But most people can play soccer, even a little kid. It's simple enough where if you can put one foot in front of the other, you can participate. But we'd be foolish to think that's all there was to soccer. No, it's simple, but it can be sophisticated as well. There's so much more to the game than running around and chasing the ball. There are various formations, various strategies to employ. There's a beauty to the game, a beauty in fancy dribbling and a spectacular strike from distance. Soccer can get pretty complicated. It is both simple and sophisticated. And the more you get into it, the more you appreciate and imply all the intricacies of that game. Here's the parallel. In some sense, it does not require much to be saved. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ who died for your sins. You know that, you do that, you're a Christian. But as you grow, as you mature, you hunger for more of that. 
You want your soul to be satisfied in that good news. You are strengthened as you delve deeper into the intricacies of the gospel. As you appreciate the various dimensions, the the beauty of your salvation, how it was accomplished. And this is what Paul climaxes on in his doxology. It says that the revelation of mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God. This is essentially a synopsis for the book of Romans, where he has unfolded, unraveled the complexities of the good news. The mystery of how God could possibly save sinners, both Jews and Gentiles, how God could reconcile all his prophecies and promises of old found in the Old Testament, how the plan of salvation could finally be revealed and extended to all nations, all according to his sovereign plan, his glorious decree. The gospel is simple, yes, but it would be foolish to think it is only that. As human beings, we are sustained by food. And as Christians, we find our faith strengthened by spiritual nourishment as we grow in our appreciation and application of this gospel, of this preaching of Jesus. Now, for some of you, this might mean taking to heart all that we've studied in the book of Romans to reflect, to get introspective and ask, how has my life changed How has my faith been stretched these past couple of years, months, even weeks? For others, perhaps it's reviewing the difficult parts, consulting other resources, other Christians who can deepen your grasp of the gospel. I mean, another option is simply just showing up to foundations of faith. Sorry, foundations of theology to fill in any gap that you have in your knowledge. Or maybe it's an outlet to expressing your faith, participating in the life of the church so you can put meat to the bones and live out what you believe about Jesus. Now the steps may vary from person to person, but if the gospel is the soil Christians thrive in, we need to plant ourselves in it one way or another. Where does this all leave us? Again, back to God, ascribing all glory to him, that as we bask in the gospel, it causes our hearts to overflow with praise. So by way of review, Romans 1 to 3 uncovers for us the plight of mankind, that from the most meticulous religious expert, like the Jew, to the most ignorant heathen, like the pagan Gentiles, we are all crooked and depraved, falling short of God's glory. And yet the bleak condition of our hearts primes us to look outside of ourselves. We stumble upon Romans four to six, Paul there teaches how this problem, this universal problem can be resolved. The tension of our sinfulness and God's righteousness is bridged by the work of another when we forsake our works to justify us before God, and by faith we cling to the work of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection, 
we are made righteous, reconciled, restored. We have peace with our maker. But if what we do has no bearing on our salvation, we might wonder what our relationship is to God's law, God's commandments. And Paul is eager to declare in Romans 7 and 8 how we've been, yes, freed from the law, but it's not so that we can just do whatever we want or indulge in our flesh, but we're freed to then fully follow after Christ, to live for him. And so we obey, not out of duty, but delight, confident. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, that he is working all things for our good to become more like his son. Chapters 9 to 11 show us the genius of God's plan of salvation, how he is indeed sovereign and wise to keep all his promises while opening up his mercy to his people, to Israel of old and to us in the present day, all the way from the past into the future. And when we take this all in, when we consider the magnitude of God's redemption, it shakes us to the core until we burst out in praise, even as the apostle did in Romans 11, 33 to 36. When he exclaims, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. And this gratitude is not only expressed with our lips, it ought to be reflected in our very lives. And from chapters 12 to the very end, Paul spotlights how our lives are transformed by this glorious gospel. We steward the gifts God has entrusted to us to love others like Jesus did, even blessing those who persecute us. We submit to governing authorities knowing that ultimately we are submitting to God himself. We leverage our freedoms not to serve ourselves, but to build up the body of Christ in our hospitality and speech, in our sacrificial giving, in our final instructions and farewell. We do it all. We aim to magnify the glory of Jesus Christ as we rejoice in the gospel of God. That's what Romans is about. That is what the apostle Paul is after. And that's what I hope and pray is our engine and desire in this life. Let's pray. God, you are the only wise, gracious, loving God. A God who would concoct such a bewildering plan to save sinners by dying for them, by sending your son as a sacrifice. That out of no merit or working of our own, but by sheer desperation in our bankruptcy, we would turn and look to Christ and plead him and we would find him precious, our treasure, our reward. Lord, that as we cherish your son, it would do something to us. It would make us more like him. It would transform us. Lord, I pray that uh, we would continue to meditate, to saturate our minds and our hearts with the gospel, that we would never get over how amazing grace is 
and it would be evident in the fruit that we bear, in the lives that we live, in how we interact with each other, and our hunger for the things of you. And so use your word, continue uh, to allow it to burrow deep into our hearts, that what would spring forth would be uh, works of grace and joy in Christ. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.